Shalom, this is Rabbi Thomas Davis Hart from Beth Elohim Messianic Synagogue bringing you parasha number two, Noach. This is Genesis 6-9 through 11-32. It didn't take long for sin to enter the world and corrupt it so badly that God had to intervene and virtually erase all life on earth and start over. This is except for Noach, who was a righteous man, wholehearted, and walked with God. Interestingly, God told Noah that he was going to destroy all living things along with the earth. And this begs the question, did God really destroy the earth along with all living things? Referring to the Zohar, we read, quote, Mankind constitutes the essence of the earth so that they infect the earth with their corruption. This explains 6.11, where the earth is described as corrupt before God filled with lawlessness. That is, all flesh had corrupted its ways on earth, yet God did not destroy the planet. Rather, everything on earth perished. So the concept God used to describe the corruption of the earth and his plan to destroy it is clarified to mean that all corruption on the earth, along with every living thing, was removed by use of the flood. Keeping with the introduction to the Nephilim last week and how they infiltrated the earth after the flood, we now explore one of the theories that posits the idea that one of Noah's daughters-in-law carried the DNA of the Nephilim. It's important to establish that Noah was the one righteous man God identified in this parasha. There's nothing to indicate that Noah's sons and or daughters-in-law were righteous. God demonstrated his grace and mercy by allowing Noah's family members to accompany him on the ark. We know that God initially blessed Noah and his sons, but the incident whereby Ham knew Noah's nakedness, which in the Hebrew indicates Ham had sexual relationships with his sexual relations with his drunken father, Shem and Japheth covered Noah and backed out of the tent with their faces turned away, so they wouldn't see his nakedness. When Noah sobered up, he cursed Canaan, who was one of Ham's sons. One of Ham's grandsons was Nimrod. Interpreting his name as a form of the Hebrew verb that means to rebel, a Midrash sees him as the archetypal rebel against the will of God. Another of Ham's sons, Mitzrayim, was the ancestor of the Philistines. Other progeny originating with Ham include the Amorites, Jebusites, among others, who spread out their clans to occupy territory that extended from Sidon as far as Gerar near Gaza and as far as Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboi, both of which suffered the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. King Abimelech is described as a conniving and evil individual. He pursued or persuaded his mother's brothers to encourage the people of Shechem to back him in a plot to overthrow his family rule and make him sole ruler. After slaying all but one of his 70 brothers, Abimelech was crowned king. It's no wonder then that Abraham feared that he would be killed and Sarah taken to be just another of Abimelech's wives. Researching these locations reveals the evil and rebelliousness against God that turns us to Ham once again and the possibility that his wife carried the DNA of Nephilim, which then enabled them to occupy the earth once more. Briefly, an excerpt from an article entitled, quote, Was Ham's Wife of the Nephilim? 
unquote, by Sorensen, were reminded that the Bible does not provide any information about the background of the wives on the ark. However, apocryphal information states that all Noah's daughters-in-law were daughters of Eliakim, son of Methuselah, but different sources vary on this. Even if it's correct, it's not known if all the women had the same mother, so the issue of genealogy remains unsolved. This subject will be covered in a future detailed study on the Nephilim I'll put out later. Moving on to the flood itself, we're told in Genesis 1-6 that God made a dome in the middle of the water, dividing the water from the water. God made the dome and divided the water under the dome from the water above the dome. In Genesis 2, 5, and 6, we read that there had been no rain to this point, and the ground was watered from the earth. When we read the details of the flood, we see rain for the first time coming from above and water rising from the earth. Could it be that there is a body of water above the sky that is the complement to the body of water called the sea? Some articles state the water above the dome is to mean the angels and heaven. We turn to the Kumash for a rabbinic explanation from the sages. According to Rashi, on the second day at God's command, let there be firmament. They solidified, creating a division between the waters above and the waters below. According to Ramban, the separation in the verses between the holy spiritual, extraterrestrial aspects of creation and the tangible world that is within the province of man, which would include even the furthest reaches of the solar system. However, Ramban goes on to say, we really don't know what this means since scripture does not elaborate on it. It's interesting to address in the context of the flood because the earth and everything on it was so corrupt that God used both the waters from heaven and from the earth below to cleanse the evil from the earth, both physically and spiritually, giving Noah and his progeny a chance at a fresh start. Nevertheless, evil continued to spring up and flourish both through the sin gene that's carried in the male and the Nephilim, making it necessary for Yeshua to offer himself as the only perfect and acceptable Ola offering to provide a way for a sinful man to become reconciled to God through his sacrifice and then to guard or keep the commands of God. Another connecting concept between the waters above and below, the dome being separated by the firmament, firmament is that there is an inextricable connection between the two realms of spiritual and the physical, which requires a conduit to connect them. That conduit is Yeshua. To be reconciled to God, we must go through Yeshua, who is also God. He is our mediator, if you will. He provides the necessary cleansing of our sins and the covering, the kippur, of his blood for forgiveness. Our Haftaraz in Isaiah 54, wherefore second Jerusalem is likened to a barren woman. God enjoys her to rejoice for the time will soon come when the Jewish nation will return, proliferate, repopulating the once desolate cities of Israel. Isaiah assures the people that God has not forsaken them. As we mentioned last week in discussing the evening coming before the morning, Israel's darkest hours must occur before the dawn and the appearance of the restoring and eternal light of Yahweh Yeshua. He will gather Israel from their exiles with great mercy. This Haftarah compares the final redemption to the pact God made with Noah in this week's Barasha. Just as God promised to never bring a flood over the entire earth, 
so too he will never again be angry at Israel. Quote, For the mountains may move, and the hills might collapse, but my kindness shall not depart from you, neither shall the covenant of my peace collapse. Unquote. Thank God. Our brick cottage shows out in Matthew 24. And this passage can only be understood by reading the verses immediately preceding. Yeshua is talking to his disciples, his Talmudim, about his reappearance and the end of the present world. This is Matthew 24, 3. He describes the sprouting of the fig tree, symbolizing the establishment of Israel as a separate state. Then he tells them that, quote, the time is near, right at the door. Yes, I tell you that this people will certainly not pass away before all these things happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away, unquote. Now we're ready to address the specific passage, quote, But when that day and hour will come, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, not the Son, only the Father. For the Son of Man's coming will be just as it was in the days of Noah. Back then, before the flood, people went on eating and drinking, taking wives and becoming wives, right up till the day Noah entered the ark, and they didn't know what was happening until the flood came, and swept them all away. It will be just like that when the Son of Man comes. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and the other left behind. There will be two women grinding flour at the mill, one will be taken and the other left behind. So stay alert, because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. But you do know this. Had the owner of the house known when the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you too must always be ready, for the Son of Man will come when you are not expecting him, unquote. There's a great deal of debate concerning the subject of this passage. Is it the rapture? Is it the second coming? I've heard arguments on both sides, but I'm convinced of the following interpretation for two reasons. First, this passage relates to our Padashah, Noach, which means rest. Genesis 7, 17, and two alludes to the rapture. The water grew higher and floated the ark so that it was lifted up off the earth. The story of Noah symbolizes the rapture and God separating his people just before destroying all life on the land. When Yeshua said that no one knows the day or the hour except the Father alone, Matthew records the introduction of the statement with peri day, that's P-E-R-I and then D-E, which means now concerning this is important. It's well established that when the peri day stands absolutely at the beginning of a sentence and followed by the genitive, it marks a new section of thought that reaches back to the previous material, often to resume an unanswered or unspoken question such as the one posed by the disciples. Then there's also a peri day construction in 1 Thessalonians 5.1. This precise construction is recognized as introducing a slightly new yet complementary subject with the 1 Thessalonians 4:13 through 18 presentation of a pre-tribulation rapture. In the latter passage, Shaul says that no one at Thessalonica need to be informed about the times and seasons because they knew perfectly well that the time of the Lord's coming was unknown. Now Paul transitions with a peri day from what Thessalonians do not know to what they do know about the rapture, the day of the Lord. The reverse is true of Matthew 24. Yeshua transitions from what the disciples can know to what they cannot know. 
A similar eschatological significance can be attributed to the word aura or hour in Revelation 3.10, where the true believers, Israel, and I'm not talking biological Israel, I'm talking about how Yeshua defines all true believers in John chapter 14, in Romans chapters 1 through 3, and in the sevenfold witness found in the book of Revelation. So all true believers promise to be kept from the hour of testing. Is this mid-trip? We don't know for sure. In reference to the future tribulation period into the day of the Lord, it may be mid-trip. In Matthew 24, 37 through 9, Yeshua refers to the coming of that day and hour as being like the days of Noah. That is, there was a sense of normalcy, if you want to call that today, on the part of the people apart from Noah and his family. And we know that the days prior to Yeshua's second coming and the day of the Lord will be anything but normal. Three and a half years into the tribulation, it will be anything but because the anti-Messiah will declare himself Messiah and all hell's going to break loose. At the sixth seal judgment, people know fully that the wrath of God has come. The calamities that precede the second coming of Yeshua will be so severe that no one could survive without his intervention. Further support for Matthew 24, 36 through 44, as describing the rapture is available, but not included in this teaching for the sake of brevity. Whether the rapture occurs at the beginning, the middle, or the end of the seven-year tribulation, true believers must be ready through diligent, loving observance of God's Torah. That's all that matters. Go back to the, the last paragraph of Ecclesiastes. The only thing that matters is that we read, learn, and live God's Torah. Shabbat Shalom. If you have any questions, comments, and anything you would like to share with me, go to our, our website at rabdavis.org. Click the link, uh, Ask the Rabbi, and I will be happy to respond. I hope you enjoyed this teaching and learned something from it. The time is near. We don't have any time to play around, and we don't want to be caught on the wrong side of the quote-unquote arc door when it closes the next time. Amen.